Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, October 30th, 2023. Happy birthday to my mom, Carol, who's always been like a mother to me, and happy anniversary to Laurel, who's the love of my life. On the show today, news, listener questions, and Universal asks how much you hate QR codes at restaurants. Then on our main segment, Jim tells us all about behind-the-scenes negotiations that go into limited-time shows like Tiana's Showboat Jubilee, which opened on this day in 2009. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that, quote, bandwidth issues is a perfectly valid reason for leaving a Zoom call, and you don't have to specify whether it's emotional bandwidth or, you know, the internet. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? <laughs> uh, it's going well, Lynn. But, but, you know, again, I'm always intrigued about the origin of words. And when something like bandwidth, you know, it's the effect of how early on did this enter the lexicon? And at any time did it involve a yardstick and the U.S. Trojans? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like like how much space does the does the marching band actually need on a football field? There are buses to consider football fields. I mean, if you're, you're spelling giant letters on the field, bandwidth is important. You know, it's kind of funny because if you if you didn't know English. Mm-hmm. And you were trying to break down the definition of that word. It, it, mm-hmm. Bandwidth is a reasonable. Uh, I agree. Uh, I, that it's a portmanteau of you know of the, of the two words. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. And remember, it's evil twin orchestra heft. <laughs> <laughs> orchestra. Heft. I think we have a new a new unit of measure for the physics. There we go. Here. There we go. Because <laughs> I'm looking at the tuba section and woo, get up. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. You with the baritones. <laughs> there you go. All right. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at Patreon and Bandcamp. Thanks to new subscribers Colleen Finnegan, Paul Lang, Dana Sharp, and Narwhal Dave. And the longtime subscribers R. Stevens, Sharon614, Jennifer Swart, and Brian Ansel. Jim, these are the Disney mixologists coming up with clever drink names based on classic Disney rides and attractions. Look out for cocktails like the Wildest Rye in the Wilderness, craft beers such as Dead Men Tell No Ales, and a hot appetizer made with canned freeze-dried cheese called A Grand and Miraculous Space Dip, coming soon to a bar near you. True story. Before we go live with this podcast, I would trademark at least two of those. They think... (laughs) Widest, wildest rye in the wilderness and dead men tell no ales. Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about the Haunted Mansion Lounge. On yeah, there's a tie show, into but, a, to a news story, but I figured yeah, I would riff on yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, no. <laughs> All right, folks, a quick reminder, we're moving the show off of Bandcamp and onto Patreon. Beginning with our show on January 1st, 2024, visit patreon.com slash jimhillmedia for more details, including the first episode of our new video series with Imagineer Jim Scholl, showing how he built various Aladdin attractions around the world. And while you're listening to the show, close down your Bandcamp subscription and sign up at patreon.com slash jimhillmedia. All right, Jim, on to the news, which is sponsored Mm -hmm. by Touring Plans, which can help book your next trip. Plus, it comes with a free Touring Plans subscription. Check it out at touringplans.com slash dish. All right, Mm -hmm. Jim, tying into our uh, intro, the Disney Cruise Line announced a Haunted Mansion-themed bar for its next ship, the Disney Treasure. And it's announced a couple of drinks to go with it. I left the concept art in the show notes. For you all to follow, but I think one of the interesting things there is the mirror behind the bar. It has uh, a Pepper's ghost effect of the mm-hmm. grim grinning ghosts, and that's kind of neat. It is. It is. I have been impressed to date with what I've seen. In fact, that this is the one bar that I'm actually kind of concerned about. You know, wow, I, you know, it's got a lot to live up to, right? 
I think it does, and more to the point, uh, how much capacity is this bar going to have? Because I, I would imagine there's going to be quite a bit of demand on a Disney Cruise Line. I hope there's room for a thousand. All right, it was there. Yeah, had to go for it. Okay, we're recording this three hours later than we normally do. So think about how much extra caffeine we've had. There we go. There we go. So the drinks that they mention here are the Ghoulish Delight, which Mm -hmm. combines ube fudge, oat milk, and tapioca pearls in a glittery purple concoction, garnished with a gummy eyeball. And uh, I think the FDA wants us to say not real eyeballs there. Also, a ghostly twist on a classic margarita mm-hmm. presented to guests among a swirl of flavored smoke and also topped with lemon salt foam and has a secret message only to be revealed by black light. And then uh, a drink called Sympathetic Libations, uh, okay. which is sour cherry and blood orange in a special tiki mug. That's going to be a big seller. There we go. There we go. Yeah, look, looks really, really good. Art looked amazing and just really hopeful for the space. Also, uh, in other news, Disney announced after-hours events for 2024. Most Wednesdays from January 10th to April 10th, it'll be at the Hollywood Studios. Uh, Magic Kingdom gets mostly Mondays and Thursdays, starting January 11th through April 8th. And then Thursdays at Epcot, February 2nd, so a month later, through April 4th. Actually, that first date, February 2nd, is the only Friday on this schedule, so uh, one exception there. And speaking of after-hours events, uh, Disney also announced that Tron Lightcycle Run at the Magic Kingdom will not use a virtual queue for the park's after-hours events. So, Jim, my uh, my sense here is that the amount of attendance during Magic Kingdom after-hours events is going to be so low that it's not worth putting people through the hassle of getting a virtual queue reservation for it. That brings me to my question about not so scary and Mickey's very merry. Do they actually make people get virtual queue reservations yeah. for this? Really? Yeah, virtual queues uh, run during the uh, during the parties. Yeah, I was actually hoping I'd get on the thing this year. Dang! And and so that that tells me that that it's uh, a lot less attendance than. Yeah. For, no, uh, I get that. I yeah. get that. But eh. also speaking of after hours, and this is something Jim I didn't see coming, but Disney's announced that the Enchantment Fireworks Show is returning to the Magic Kingdom for its after-hours events in 2024. Remember, this was the uh, Enchantment Fireworks show was the one that was announced for the 50th anniversary. But then Mm -hmm. as soon as the 50th was over, they switched back to Happily Ever After. And we had mentioned on the show that the guest ratings that we'd seen for Enchantment Mm -hmm. were substantially lower than Mm -hmm. for Happily Ever After. So why bring it back just for after-hours? The normal shelf life of a Disney theme park, let's remember, wishes ran forever. Yeah. But typically, they hope for a three to four year long life, at the very least, for yeah. a new fireworks show, given the money they spend on development, the hours they have to spend afterwards in the park, the infrastructure that's put in place. Yeah. And, and four, four years makes sense because if you do one new show a year for each park, you're on mm-hmm. a four year cycle. There we go. There yeah, we go. Perfect. But okay, evidently, thanks. it was one of these things where the very thing you mentioned, just did not get the guest reaction that they had hoped for the 50th. And for the general populace, they switched back to, Legar, we heard what you said, happily ever after is coming back. But on the other hand, from a bookkeeping point of view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, are, are they are they practicing what ha- uh, what uh, what happens? Uh, what does our CPA say when we bring things back, a.k.a. Galactic Star Cruiser? <laughs> yeah. I, 
know we wrote so, this off, but you know, yeah. But no, that's it exactly. It's one of these things where it's guys, we we haven't finished appreciating this yet. Yeah. So it's just sort of like the infrastructure is still in place. Mm -hmm. uh, the program is still available. Yeah. They bought so much pyro to support this show. Uh -oh. Len, using the term burn off with pyro, just <laughs> not a good thing. But seriously, that's what we're looking at here. It's just sort oh, yeah. of like, a, and it's not a bug. It's a feature. Okay. Exactly. I mean, you're coming after hours. You're going to get to see a different fireworks show than guests who, who show up on the nights when we're not doing an after hours event. And that, that's why I think it's an enticement for people to buy tickets to this party. Because if you combine, you mm -hmm. know, hey, new fireworks show you can't see during regular park hours, plus no virtual queue needed for Tron. And, you know, it's, a, it's an after hours party with food and stuff like that. That could be enough to tip the scales for a lot of people to buy those tickets, yeah. Especially for folks who are, you know, have gone back to Disney World multiple times. And I yep. mean, just that alone, the notion of, wait, I actually get to queue up for Tron and get on it <laughs> you yeah. know, without, you know, beating on my phone and cursing. It's yeah. like, wow, that'll be great. It's a selling point. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of uh, virtual queues, Rise of the Resistance will use a virtual queue during Jollywood Nights this winter. And I think, uh, Jim, uh, when Disney mm -hmm. announced this, you always got to try and ask why they're doing it. I think in this case, mm -hmm. it's because the ride is so unreliable because it breaks down mm -hmm. twice a day on average for an hour each time that Disney doesn't want to refund your Jollywood Nights ticket when you wait in line for it and it breaks down. Like I 100% think that using virtual queue for Rise of the Resistance, but not for Tron, is all about reliability. You're not wrong. You're yeah. not wrong. All right. Uh, Disney's also announced a reopening date of January 30th, 2024 for Disneyland's Pixar Place Hotel. And Jim, I threw some concept art in here for this, but yeah, it looks good. It's coming online after the holiday season. Remember, this hotel has been open during its reimagining. So mm. it's been fascinating to watch it go from kind of a bare bones Pixar to, again, when you look at what the finished product looks like, it's okay. This is something a Pixar fan will really enjoy. Yeah, it definitely looks bright and open, and there are really large images of various mm -hmm. Pixar characters there. So, yeah, it's concentrated on animated films, but mm -hmm. so is art of animation. But the two don't look anything alike. Like, you could have almost understood if Disney was just like, you know what we're going to do? West Coast art of animation. Mm -hmm. But they didn't, so give them credit for that. No, yeah, I agree. Excited to see it. And our own Guy Selga has a mm -hmm. reservation for the night of January 30th, so we'll hear all about oh. this new hotel from him. Well, cool. Good for Guy. And speaking of openings, Jim, Blizzard Beach reopens in a couple of weeks, November 6th. Mm -hmm. And I would expect Typhoon Lagoon to close at that time for its annual refurbishment as well. So good to see Blizzard Beach open. All right, Jim, on to surveys. Universal Orlando has a new and surprisingly long survey about mm -hmm. the use of QR codes for menus in restaurants. Lots of listeners sent in their screen caps too. So thanks to Clay and Shane, and Rob and Jeff and James, Caroline and everyone who sent this in, here are the highlights. Mm -hmm. So the purpose of the survey seems to be to figure out how much you hate QR codes in restaurants and the scenarios under which you hate them. So the first question is this. In general, what's your preference for viewing a menu at a restaurant? And there are two choices. I prefer to hold a physical menu or I prefer to scan a QR code. And then the next question is, is generally speaking, how do you feel about the use of QR codes? to access a dining menu. And it's the standard sort of thing. Like, I hate them, you know, all the way to I love them. Okay. But then there's a series of questions, and this is where I'm, I only picked a few questions here. And the reason why I picked mm -hmm. them is, 
uh, will become evident when I'm done. Mm -hmm. Next question is, in what kind of dining venues or settings, if any, mm -hmm. would you prefer a digital menu over a physical or paper menu? So like mm -hmm. a lot of people answered like fast food restaurants or counter service mm -hmm. restaurants. Mm -hmm. uh, and then using the scales below, please how you would describe the venue or mm -hmm. the experience at a restaurant that offers digital menus accessed by scanning a QR code. So for an arbitrary restaurant that you're imagining in your head, if we told you that they used digital menus through QR codes, right? Which pair of words would you think that uh, that, that restaurant falls in the spectrum? So they've got um, opposite words and they've got uh, eight or nine of them listed here. So one example mm -hmm. of opposites are rushed versus leisurely or mm -hmm. expensive versus inexpensive, casual versus formal. The ones that are interesting, though, uh, I think the, the ones where Universal is probably more concerned are tacky versus classy, slow versus efficient, clean versus dirty. Hmm. And then around the benefits of QR codes, there's this question that says, please indicate how much you agree or disagree with the following statements about them. It makes the dining experience feel less special when I use a QR code. It makes mm -hmm. me feel like the waitstaff are less attentive. It makes me feel like it's hard to ask questions about the menu. Mm -hmm. It makes me worry that the restaurant may access or track my personal data. Uh, it makes the dining experience feel informal. Mm -hmm. It makes it easy to review and compare menu options. And it makes it easier for everyone in the travel party to view menus at the same time. And then there's a next set of questions. And Jim, this is, this is why it's always good to mm -hmm. get different versions of the survey. Because remember on last week's survey, we had talked about how Universal was customizing certain offers based on whether you have kids over the age of five or under the age of five. Yep. I think this next question mm -hmm. is only designed to be viewed by people of a certain age. Here's why. Okay. Please indicate how much you agree or disagree with the following statements about scanning your QR codes. Number mm -hmm. one, it disregards basic dining etiquette. It is not mm -hmm. possible to have your phone out at the dining table. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel like my dining party is distracted by their phones. Mm -hmm. And then it makes me feel less exposed to germs. And so let me just say this. If I asked this question to Hannah, my daughter, who's 25, right? Mm -hmm. She would probably not say that bringing your phone out to read a menu violates some basic dining etiquette. Mm -hmm. But if I asked my grandmother, Doris, yes. or is she alive, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It'd be like one of those things like, get your elbows off the table. What do you mean you're going to look at your phone <laughs> while we're sitting down to eat? Right? Like that's... <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, uh, I, you basically get the story of like, my, my ancestors did not come over on a boat from America with $3, to America with $3 <laughs> in their pocket for you to sit on your phone while we're eating my pasta. Since the pandemic... And the number of restaurants that defaulted to this and yeah. love the fact that I'm, I'm not printing a menu or more to the point. It's cheaper. They're easier to update. You don't have to clean them. They don't get lost. There we yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. And to just now staring down the barrel of, okay, pandemic, mostly in the rear view. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people are looking to return to their former dining habits and, and they want to hold a physical menu. They want that part of the, the dining ritual. And it's yeah. just sort of like... This is another one of these surveys that was written with a goal in mind. Mm. <laughs> you know, it just sort of reads like... You mentioned like, that. And, and one of the yeah. things I was thinking of is, you know, whatever yeah. the results of this survey are, it will definitely mm -hmm. be fed into the team that's helping build out 
Epic Universe, right? Oh, absolutely. Because they haven't absolutely. printed menus for Epic Universe restaurants yet, but they mm-hmm. will. Yeah. Or, you know, they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll come to a point where they have to make the decision. And I think mm-hmm. they're going to look at these survey results, look at mm-hmm. what they want to um, present those restaurants as, and then make adjustments based on that. I agree. The one thing that I was, um, other than the generational divide, the other thing that I was, I was mm-hmm. interested in here is whether Universal has done a similar survey asking about the use of paper menus, because we don't really have a baseline mm-hmm. to compare the QR code things to. Right? What if you just hate menus in general and you want something written on a chalkboard where you walk mm-hmm. in or a sign, right? Why does it have to be a menu that's either a QR code or a, um, you know, or, or a paper menu? Why can't the server just tell you what there is? And if anyone in Universal knows and wants to tell mm-hmm. me, what's the baseline for these mm-hmm. results? Like, what's the thing we're comparing it to? Yeah. Anyway. Also, speaking of surveys, Jim, our friend Annie Middleberg wrote mm-hmm. in about a Disney survey she got after visiting Gasparilla Grill at the Grand Floridian. Mm-hmm. And he says that her answers to Disney's survey questions were all variations on the phrase, I have very strong feelings about the cheese Danish there. And Jim, let me say that I have never related more to a listener email than Annie's. <laughs> Danish is the perfect breakfast food. I will accept no no argument there. <laughs> My only caveat there is fresh cheese Danish. Oh, God, yeah. Fresh, oh, like a nice moist cheese Danish. I hate the word yeah, moist, but... Mm. Earlier this week, I, I had a cheese Danish that had clearly been waiting for me for several days. It's like <laughs> almost dislocated my jaw. It was like, you know, oh, pasty flavor. Oh, my God. <laughs> My, the one thing that I, I, you know, stopped eating because, mm-hmm. you know, as you get older, this stuff will kill you, is mm-hmm. a convenience store Danish. Um, like you pick up something wrapped in cellophane that was, you know, made during the Carter administration or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A cup of coffee. Oh, Jim. Mm, mm. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Andy, I'm with you on the Danish thing. Yeah, it's, a, it's the perfect breakfast food. The, yeah. All right. On to listener questions. We have an update mm-hmm. on a question that listener Adam Varenti wrote in mm-hmm. last week about whether Disney is speeding up rides like Winnie the Pooh. So mm-hmm. we went back and measured both Winnie the Pooh uh, and also the Grand Fiesta Tour. As far mm-hmm. as we can tell, Adam, they are exactly the same in mm. terms of speed. And I you know, asked around a little bit from Imagineers, especially those on the ride safety side mm-hmm. of things. And one of the things that they told me was you have a, a very, very small window of speeds mm-hmm. under which the ride is designed to operate. And we're talking like a couple percent variation one way or the other. But there's no way that you're going to speed up a ride by like 15 or 20 percent without wreaking havoc, if it's even oh, possible yeah. at all. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Jim. Actually, there's a question for you. Is from listener Nick Driss, who says mm-hmm. this: Have you or Jim heard anything on whether Voyage of the Little Mermaid is coming back? I'm hearing they're refurbishing it, but then I'm hearing it's due to be demolished. Is any of this true? You want to start first? All right. oh, okay, so yeah. I have some background here. Okay, so okay. Voyage of the Little Mermaid closed with the rest of Walt Disney World on March 15th, 2020, mm-hmm. with the rest of you know the park for, for COVID. When it reopened, the theater was briefly used as a mm-hmm. line for Slinky Dog Dash, of all things, when we mm-hmm. were all social distancing in line. And I walked through it, so I got to see the unused theater. But I heard around that same time that a crew from Disney was in the theater during the pandemic, during off hours, doing a 3D scan of everything in the theater, the seats, the props, everything, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. so that they could digitally recreate it later on. And to me, that's an indication that it's closing. And Mm -hmm. I've not heard anything about it coming back. And let's face it, it was, at the time, a 20-year-old show that had been updated like twice. 
And it mm-hmm. probably took a lot of equity performers to run. Plus, in terms of guest satisfaction, it mm-hmm. was average at best, maybe a little mm-hmm. lower as compared to the park's other attractions. So if I had to bet, Nick, I would say probably not coming back. Yeah. But Jim, what about all the space <laughs> that Animation Courtyard is taking up? <laughs> there was about a five-minute long talk when the live-action Little Mermaid was was headed to theaters. And remember, that that's another one of these films that got delayed by the pandemic. But, right. you know, the notion was, we have a theater that literally does a Little Mermaid show. We could move it in there. But the very thing that Len was mentioning, I mean, if you remember the queue space for this thing. I mean, the tight little lobby, and then they throw you into the theater, and lasers were cool in 1991 and (laughs) bubble effects. But, you know, it's just sort of like, we have since moved on. Our tastes have evolved. (laughs) Yep. And Len is not wrong about the real estate. If you look at the animation courtyard, and you take into consider the magic of Disney animation, how little of that space is used to this day. I mean, yeah. Star Wars Launch Bay, is that still even in operation at this point? Or? It's operating, but but only mm-hmm. the basic parts of it. Like, they're, they're yeah. no longer showing the film. And it's a, it's a ghost town. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Let's be blunt here, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so this is, I mean, in, in, the, uh, in the show notes, Jim, I have a mm-hmm. Google map where I mm-hmm. sort of marked off the area that is Animation Courtyard and then the area behind it that's between mm-hmm. Animation Courtyard in Rock and Roller Coaster, because that area actually backs up to a Rock and Roller Coaster. And that's seven acres, Jim, of prime, prime real estate. Earlier in the show, Len referred to the the three and four year cycle where each park gets a little love. Yep. If you understand the lazy Susan principle of it's their turn in the spotlight and then things happen. So Galactic Star Cruiser opened in 2019. We then pivoted to Epcot that because of the pandemic, things got slowed down there. But we can remember, they announced earlier this year that work on Epcot is going to wrap up this year. You know, that they... <laughs> okay, Jim. Okay. Yeah, all right. You know, you know, they said it. I, you know, we don't Sorry. have to believe so, it, but they said it. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, uh, and as recently as the Destination D23, Bruce Vaughn, you know, stood on stage and told us about the... Encanto area that's being considered for Animal Kingdom, along with their dinosaur becoming indie. But he also referred to after that project is beyond Big Thunder. So right. that would mean after Beyond Big Thunder, it mm-hmm. would then be the studio's turn yet again right. to get a development of size. And this piece of real estate, this seven acres that Len is referring to. That's the moment that it goes under the knife. And this is where it's going to happen. Oh, yeah. Now, the notion of Toy Story Land doing as well as it is and mm-hmm. with other potential IPs from Pixar yeah. coming into this park. And I cannot tell you the number of times I have heard variations on a Monsters Incorporated take on this. But we also have to be realistic. This is three and four years out. Who knows what movie will come up between now and then and and get people excited. But yeah, all I can tell you is watch this space because this is the next big thing for the studio, whatever goes in here. I mean, it makes sense to use that area too versus, you know, going, uh, you know, farther north 
over oh, was it Cypress Drive where you'd have to you know bring in bulldozers and stuff because you've got a lot of the the ground leveling and stuff already done. But Jim, I think the other thing that this addresses is just from a guest experience perspective, Disney mm-hmm. hates to use dead ends, right? So Sunset Boulevard is a dead end. The very fact that you could finally create a way for guests from the center of the park to walk straight back in, you know, toward Tower and Rock and Roller Coaster. Right. And that Without having to thing. go through the center of the park and then down. So, yeah, that would be huge. And, and the reason for that is, I mean, think mm-hmm. about the guest experience, right? You've walked mm-hmm. all the way down Sunset Boulevard. And, you know, you may have, you know, liked or loved mm-hmm. Tower of Terror and Rock and Roller Coaster. But now you're walking back up the same street you came. You're not yeah. seeing anything new. You're not being tempted to try anything new or shop anywhere new, right? Mm-hmm. It's basically like, okay, now we got to walk back up this street to get to the next thing that we really want to do. Mm-hmm. But if you just turn left and walk through this new land, it's like mm-hmm. a marvel of entertainment that we've never seen before. Yeah. But there we go. But again, seven acres of yeah. opportunity, but just temper that with the notion of, you know, it's three and four years out. Now. But again, remember, this is the Disney company that said we're going to spend $60 billion in the parks in the next yeah. 10 years. And they will. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm excited for uh, for this one, though. I think the reason why they're doing uh, Beyond Big Thunder is everyone understands the Magic Kingdom. It's the most understandable uh, of the parks, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll see. But uh, but I, I do think this is uh, absolutely needed. And I think, uh, as you, you know, I've talked about this before, like we've walked, when we're walking in the studios, Oh, yeah. Oh, God. If we could, you know, there's 16 things we could do with this. It's just a matter of picking the right thing. So, all right, cool. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us about the -the behind-the-scenes negotiations that have Mm -hmm. to happen for us to get movie and TV tie-ins like Tiana's Showboat Jubilee in the parks. We'll be right back. I believe, I could be wrong here, but uh, didn't Disney once do something in the parks related to one of its movies or television series? <laughs> yes, Len. I vaguely seem to recall something, something, something. It, it, I love how observant you are. I Thank mean, let's face it, it's kind of circling back to Bob Chapek, a, a former CEO of the Walt Disney Company, who once, when asked about, you know, all you guys do these days, you don't do original, you know. Sorry, IPs sorry Jim, I, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to interrupt, but when, when you mentioned the word Bob Chapek, a question for our yes. listeners, did anyone else start smelling sulfur or is it just me? <laughs> I'm sorry, I just I had to get that out. Go ahead, go ahead, Jim, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, the cloud appeared. But one of the things I always enjoyed about the, the, the Bob Chapek era of the company is he consistently said the quiet part out loud. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta give him credit, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and that was the thing. Somebody asked him about why don't we do new IPs for the parks anymore, or like like a haunted mansion or Pirates of the Caribbean. And it was the effective look. If our rivals had our IPs, our characters in the movies and the animated films, they do the same thing. Oh yeah, I mean, and the Universal is right. Look at look at what they're building out for Minions and the Harry Potter yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, right from the get go, Disney has done this for sixty eight years now. and you don't have to look any further. Then Sleeping Beauty Castle at Disneyland, which, by the way, if you want to hear a, a great story about, you know, the man Robin who Robin Hood actually, Castle. <laughs> Robin Hood Castle, yes. We, we have an exclusive show for subscribers just on this There topic. we go. Yeah. There we go. But the thing to understand about Sleeping Beauty is it took eight years to make. Mm-hmm. And a typical Disney animated feature takes three and a half years. In fact, I, I remember there was this... This famous conversation between uh, Roy E. Disney and Jeffrey Katzenberg, where Jeffrey was like, yeah, I think it's about three years. 
that began to feature and Roy would correct him, but no, no, it takes three and a half. And that, you know, that half a year is crucial. You know, yeah. that's when you lose your way. You know, you have to find your way back. But the reason that Sleeping Beauty, which started production in April of 51, didn't make it to the screen till February of, of 59 was this was the film that Disney put into production this was before Walt got into television in a big way. I mean, he'd done oh, those okay, yeah. two holiday specials. And like everybody in the business, he was a little scared of, of television. And so the notion was, all right, so what's television? Okay, it's it's black and white and it's on an 80-inch screen. So how do you fight that? You fight that with Super Technorama 70, Len. <laughs> Super Technorama 70? <laughs> Now with Brill Cream or whatever. Well, no, no, that's an exact, now with the Pat. same thing. You know. <laughs> but you know, the, the whole notion was that, that you, know, you wanted the, the widest format possible. Yeah. And then because they wanted Sleeping Beauty to be thought of as different than Cinderella and Snow White, mm -hmm. they deliberately chose a design for the film where it, literally the, the, they described it in the 1950s. It's like, it's going to be so detailed. It's like looking at a moving tapestry. Right. And we saw this when we were at uh, the Met Museum. When they, when they did. Yeah. It, and it, it looked like tapestry. Yeah. Great point. When I'm looking for an evening's entertainment, my, my first question is, not, well, is it going to be big and slow moving? <laughs> yeah, do, you, do you have anything that would be best described by the word lumbering? There we go. <laughs> oh, you actually <laughs> used the word lumber in the show notes. <laughs> I did. I did. You know, just because again, like a vat of molasses. This is why we're meant to be together. We're used to, we, to, we, we know like eight words, but we used it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but but anyway, to further this along again, you know that, that and Walt was like, all right, it's also going to be special. all right. T tell you what, we're going to do six channel stereo sound for the Tchaikovsky music, oh, and right. and it's like now, Len, I know this is going to start to sound familiar to you because it's like, okay, so you're making an animated film that's going to be big and pretty to look at and with stereophonic sound. Hmm, when have we done this before, Len? <laughs> oh, maybe like ten or fifteen the, the previous decade with Fan Fantasia. There we go. All right. The, the, the film that cost the company $2.8 million to make and lost a million dollars. All right. So jump ahead to February 59. Sleeping Beauty finally opens in theaters after eight years in production. Cost $6 million to make. Only sells $5.3 million worth of tickets. So it's such a drag on the company's earnings that for the next fiscal year, the, the one for 1960, for the first time in a decade, Len, mm -hmm. the company has to declare a loss. And, oh. and, and remember, this is when Disneyland is open, where they're making money hand over fist. Oh, so this is when Walt realizes, hey, you know, these parks might be worth something. <laughs> but it's still not enough to counter the money that went down the Sleeping Beauty rat hole. Oh, wow. All right. The archive hates when I mentioned this story. But back in February of 1942, when, when Walt is on stage at the Academy Awards receiving the Irving Thalberg Award, he actually apologizes for making Fantasia. This is literally a quote from the speech he made that night, Len. It's like, mm. Fantasia, in a way, I feel like I should be, I should have a medal for bravery or something. We, we all make mistakes, I know, but this was an honest mistake. Wow. About Fantasia. 
about Fantasia. So now think about this. It's spring of 59. Walt is looking at the box office totals for Sleeping Beauty. And it's like, damn it, I did it again. I made another Fantasia. He's like, that's it. I'm getting out of the animation business. And this. Really? Sleeping Beauty literally, was, was, Walt was like, I'm done with uh, cartoons. They actually started, Lane. Uh, this is another part of Disney history that the archives hate when I bring this up. But the layoffs that occurred at Walt Disney Animation Studio in the spring of 59, hundreds of people lost their jobs. They would, wow. A lot of them came into work and literally found a letter on their desk that said, your services are no longer required. And, wow. and Disney Animation went from a place where hundreds of people worked to a place where dozens of people mm -hmm. worked. And wow. I, I have to flat out tell you that if 101 Dalmatians had not been a hit when it hit uh, arrived in theaters in January 61, it might have all been over. Why'd they even release it, though? Well, the thing was, it was so far along oh, in production okay. yeah. at that time. They had bought the rights to the Dodie Smith book. They had already transitioned the crew over to working on it. And they also had this new technique that they really wanted to try xerography that yeah. took a lot of, of the expense out of the inking process and speeded things along. And it's like, let's try one more. You mentioned this, and I don't think we've ever really talked about this on the show, but um, mm. 101 Dalmatians was one of the first big commercial uses of Xeroxing for the dots on the Dalmatian. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, anyway, uh, it cost about half of what it, it costs to do Sleeping Beauty, 3.6 versus 6 million. Yeah. It also sells $14 million of tickets and moves a mountain of puppy plush. Oh, so yeah. Walt Disney Animation Studios, which had been teetering on the brink of extinction two years earlier, it's okay. It's safe for now. Yeah. All right, we jump ahead another 12 years. It's now 1973. Walt Disney Productions is celebrating its 50th anniversary length, and Walt Disney Animation Studios finds itself at another crossroads. Walt dies December of 66, but yep. before he dies, Walt signs off on the idea for the studio's next animated feature after Jungle Book. They have this property that they were going to do as a two-part episode of the wonderful you know, world of color. And it's just, but it's like, eh, you know, about the, these kittens and uh, that become the heirs to a fortune and and it's just sort of like uh, Ken Anderson does some sketches and it's like, well, it's like, yeah, that could be a cartoon. OK, go with that. And so that gets released to theaters in December of 1970. But this is the, uh, the Aristocats, the Aristocats. OK. All right. But even then, we are in a situation where Card Walker is now the COO of Walt Disney Productions. And his mantra is, guys, you got to cut costs on animation. You have to. This is so expensive. So, for example, if you look at the early concept art for Aristocats, Thomas O'Malley, the character that Phil Harris, uh, the guy who voiced Baloo, yep. voices for the Aristocats, he was originally a calico. He had stripes. But it was one of these things where, how much is it going to cost? Yeah, to how, much, how much are stripes? Exactly. How much are stripes? <laughs> and it's like, do you remember Shere Khan? That was expensive. Do you remember the puppies from Modern One Dalmatian? Oh, my God. And so it's like, that's why Thomas O'Malley suddenly became an orange tabby with like a white face and white paws. Because it's like, you know, we cannot do stripes. And we burned through the one idea for an animated feature that Walt came up with. What do we do now? And remember, during this time, the Disney company was famous for, what would Walt do? 
in this particular case, the question got mutated to what did Walt do? Is there something we could sort of circle back on? And yes, yes, oh, we can. I, yeah, that's tough, but okay. The 1952, the second live action film we ever did for the studio. Uh, again, a completely live action, no animation. The story of Robin Hood and his merry men. It's like, all right, tell you what, why don't we take something, material we already trust, it's tried mm -hmm. and true, it's a story we've already done, and why don't we do that as an animated feature? And <laughs> Robin Hood is beloved by the current generation. It's, it's Laurel's favorite Disney movie. If you look at like something like Zootopia, which literally talks about we loved Robin Hood, <laughs> we wanted to go back to that world. And yeah. so to have animals walking on two feet and how they interact, and that's where it came from. Oh, Now this is a Disney looking at its own live action film library and going, what can we turn into an animated film? Which is an inversion of today's Disney company, which is like, what animated film can we turn into a live action, live -action movie? Film. Hey, yeah. that little mermaid, let's bring her in here. So Disney gets their animated version of Robin Hood in production, but same mantra coming on down from on high in Card Walker's office, only now because Roy E. Disney has passed. He's, you mm. know, Card's no longer the COO. He's the company president. Right. So now you really have to listen to Card, which is why Robin Hood is kind of infamous for that, the phony King of England scene where yeah. if you're wa watching the animation, how much of that is lifted from Snow White and Jungle Book and, and, and Aristocats? But it's also the animated movie that's coming out into theaters the year that the company is celebrating its 50th anniversary. And so oh, the okay. message that the parks get is you need to go big. You need to go On really big. Now, when the Aristocats opened, the parks literally built just three walk-around costumes on. There was Scat Cat, there was Hit Cat, which was the hippie cat with the glasses and the love beads, and then, then there was Peppo, the Italian cat with the trollian hat and the little neck scarf. And What was his name? Peppo. <laughs> Peppo the cat? Peppo okay, the it's cat. It's kind of a great name for a cat. I'll go along with that. But man, you okay. talk about things that you couldn't do in 2023. No, you... You cannot. But Jimmy, you mentioned this, and it's like, if, if any of our listeners have ever gone back and looked at old home movies of of walk-around characters in Disneyland, you know that mm. this is like one step up from high school production of, you know, of Cats, right? Yeah. They were professionals, yeah. don't get me wrong, but mm -hmm. it was clearly, yeah. the emphasis was not on uh, fidelity to the no. animated TV, uh, the animated film, right? Okay. No, not, not at all. But again, think about it. Whole film, they only put three characters in the park. On the other hand, for Robin Hood, mm -hmm. the wardrobe department for the parks created a walk-around character outfit for Robin Hood, made Marion, Little John, Friar Tuck, Sheriff of Nottingham. And in fact, for a time in the park, they had a Toby the Turtle costume. Oh, they, wow. they, but again, the problem was that to build a Toby the Turtle costume, it was kind of like Figzilla. You know, you, the cute little turtle character was now seven feet tall, and, and children were, were wetting themselves as he went over to, <laughs> I'll pose for a photo with you. Ah! You say that like it's a bad thing, Jim, but I think, think, of how, think of how many memorable family photos there are because of Toby the Turtle now. <laughs> this is true. All right. So to make sure that when these walk-around characters from Disney's Robin Hood made a big splash whenever they appeared in the daily character parade, 
They built a full-size version of Prince John's Royal Coach, and whenever it rolled through the park, this film's villain was accompanied by four royal hippo attendants, four royal elephant bearers. They're the ones who were actually pulling Prince John's coach, four rhino guards, a crocodile herald, and a really lethal-looking rhinoceros executioner. How many people is that? 21 performers. 21 equity performers. There we go. In just (laughs) one unit of the three three o'clock parade. So who pays for this? The studio, for a time, agrees to front this money to the effect of, okay, it's our movie in theaters in 1973. We want the parks to have a big splash so people, when they get home, get the effect of, ooh, that Robin Hood is still in theaters. The kids and I should go see that. Mm-hmm. By the way, this was not the only over-the-top thing that Disney did in 73 to help celebrate the 50 happy years. Go Google Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade 1973 because they had a 46-foot-tall Cinderella castle that rolled through the canyons of Manhattan. Wow. And it's actually a surprisingly good likeness of the Cinderella castle that opened at the park just two years earlier. Also, so much more impressive because to come in from Hoboken, which is where they're stored, all these parade floats have to fold down to 12 and a half feet to make it through the Lincoln Tunnel. So when... When you look at this wonderful representation of Cinderella Castle, it's like, wow, that all folds up to 12 and a half feet. But anyway, a tribute to the, the Macy's Design Studio. That now, But OK, so now to, to circle back to your earlier question of how many performers. So, again, we had our 21 performers for the Robin Hood unit. Was that the largest number to ever come into a park with money from the studio to promote a film? No. Really? In November of 2009, because Disney had decided to get back into the hand-drawn animation business after Disney bought Pixar in January of 2006 and John Lasseter took over as the creative head of both studios. And he's like, we're bringing back hand-drawn. And the first thing we're going to do is Princess and the Frog. And so it's like, this needs to be in the parks in a big, big way. Hmm. Now, you saw Tiana's showboat jubilee in the park, right? Yeah, Okay. There are big shows, and then there are big shows. Right. I mean, they shut down an attraction for hours at a time. Yeah. That they did. On both coasts, the Liberty Bell at Walt Disney World and the Mark Twain at Disneyland would sit at the dock waiting for the cast of Tiana's Jubilee. And we're talking 18 dancers, six musicians, and we have three characters. We have Tiana, Prince Naveen. We have Lewis, the, the alligator, that's a performer yeah. in a suit. And these are these are equity performers at this point. You've got um, go. health and safety people because you're near water. People could fall over. I mean, there's just a lot going on here, right? Okay. Absolutely. And and uh, let's not also forget about the, the, the guy playing Dr. Fisalea with his finger extensions. Yeah. In Florida, they promenaded through uh, uh, Frontierland uh, and Square, yeah. then yeah, up to Liberty Square to, to board the boat. And, of course, at Disneyland, they promenaded through New Orleans Square, then went into the Frontierland and got on the boat. And then the boat leaves the dock. It goes probably 100, 150 feet, drops anchor, and it then for 13 minutes, they do sort of a highlight reel of all of the music from Princess and the Frog. And it's, yeah. it's so worth seeking out 
on YouTube because yeah, I mean, just you see this spectacular show where all three levels of the boat are being used and people are dancing and and doing yeah. choreographed. It looks like a nineteen fifties uh, movie extravaganza. But again, Jim, absolutely. Think, think about how much that thing tied up in the parks, yeah. right? Because mm-hmm. now the Tom Sawyer Island rafts have mm-hmm. to contend with the riverboat traffic. They it's do. probably holding up a little bit of the Haunted Mansion line because people in mm-hmm. that line are mm-hmm. rubbernecking, looking at the show rather than paying attention to where they are in line. Like the park impact for that mm-hmm. one show, it's almost difficult to quantify exactly where Oh, it no, 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 totally. And when you think about if you're doing it three and four times a day, which they did yeah. at the height of the season, remember this starts in November and runs through like the first week of January. So it's the most crowded time of year. Yeah. To be doing this. But on the other hand, it was John Lasseter actually came up with the idea because if you you watch the actual Princess of the Frog movie, there's a good chunk of the movie that's set on a riverboat. In fact, to get the authentic sound of a riverboat, they sent sound engineers down to Disneyland. The, The steamboat whistle is the Mark Twain. Oh, that's nice. That's a nice little piece of trivia. Yeah, but in the end, because it was so expensive, and as Len mentioned, it tied up so many resources at the park, in spite of the fact that it also had one of the best guest ratings for a piece of entertainment in the oh, park yeah. for that year. Yeah. Uh, on the first week of January, it stopped and it never came back. In fact, I, I was chatting with our friend Mr. Shul about this, and you know, he said that sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes the studio will pay for something that goes into the park that proves to be so popular, the park will begrudgedly, you know, it's like, oh, it's popular and people like it and I guess we better keep it. But he says, you can always tell when they've handed off operations from the studio paying for it for the park paying for it because he says, the day the park starts paying for it, about a third of the cast gets laid off. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's well, This like- is the thing that I love about this business model for the parks, mm-hmm. right? Because the yeah. we all know that the way that theme parks get guests is by opening mm-hmm. new things. Yeah. Right. So they mm-hmm. need new things. Mm-hmm. Here comes the studio saying, here's an idea that we have for a new thing that's going to be wildly popular. It's based on a character from a hit film. People are going to love mm-hmm. it. And then the park says, how much are you going to pay us to do it? <laughs> like, we're doing you the favor here by putting on something that's going to bring people into our park. <laughs> kind of amazing. Kind of amazing. Before we close up here, I just want to share one more story, which again, I, you, know, you have to understand, Disneyland has had a steamboat since the park opened in 55. Yep. First new steamboat built in, in the United States in, in 60 or 70 years at that point, and it has operated basically continuously at the park. But the, the other reality is that guests look at that and go, well, how much time? If I get in that, and you know, it's, it's 20 yeah. minutes of my time in the park. And it's like, geez, I don't know if I want to make that investment in time. And so attendance, I mean, I, I don't need to tell you from, you know, Mr. Turing Plans, who keeps tabs on who rides what. The riverboat is not as popular as it once was. No. And by once was, you mean uh, the late 1870s. But go ahead. Well, there we go. Okay. <laughs> we have been told by Bruce Vaughn that one of the things that is being considered for the Magic Kingdom is a villain's land. Yeah. Supposedly, one of the ideas that's being considered for the villain's land is, well, again, unique eateries. You need... Restaurants, restrooms, yeah. That sort of thing. It's like, okay, so what are we going to do that's going to be different 
for Villains Land and things that people remember specifically from films. And do you remember the original Rescuers movie, Len? Where Madame Medusa lived? I don't, I don't remember this. Okay. She lived in a dilapidated steamboat. Ooh. So that evidently is Synergy. one of the ideas. <laughs> there we go. Supposedly one of the ideas that's on the table for Villain's Land at the Magic Kingdom. And again, remember, we are many years out from this, folks, so plans yep. could change. But supposedly it's like, well, forever people have been asking for, you know, like a New Orleans Square in essence. And it's like, well, we can't do New Orleans Square, but we could do Madame Medusa's Riverboat where we could serve gumbo on board and you could mm. do your character dining with the Disney villains. And oh, and, you know, Disney, Disney's done uh, dining on a riverboat before. Yes, oh, they have. Yes, they have. I thought you were going to say that they were going to use the riverboat as transportation to the beyond Big Thunderland. And, I, you know, in my head I was like, you know, how many, what's, what kind of throughput do you have on that? Will people actually do it? And then I remembered, like, well, a lot of people actually take a riverboat from the TTC to get to the Magic Kingdom. So there we go. for a lot of there people, it's viable. Yeah, okay. So there's a lot of stuff they can do there. Yeah, that the, works. No, no, absolutely. The, but again, it's it's just, this is becoming less desired capacity over time. And it's like, yeah. is there something yeah. else we could do with this boat? Again, going back to valuable real estate. Yeah, there's a lot we can do here. There we go. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show and Jimmy Hill Media by subscribing over at patreon.com slash Jimmy Hill Media, where we're posting a brand new exclusive show about the Spectra Magic Parade and on Disneyland's Robin Hood Castle, plus our new behind-the-scenes videos with Imagineer Jim Shull, who created the Aladdin attractions for Disney theme parks all around the world. On next week's show, Jim tells us all about laminar flow, Imagineers fighting, and all of the things that go into making a jumping water fountain. It's Physics Fun Week on the Disney Dish. You can find more <laughs> of Jim at jimhomemedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. Don't forget that next week we're doing a live podcast from the Theme Park Play Workshop, at MIT's Game Lab at 6.30 p.m. on Thursday, November 9th at the Stata Center, room 32-155, and it's free and open to the public. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be tossing the caper and scrolling his bagpipes at the 62nd Scottish Gathering at Highland Games for three days, starting Friday, November 10th, 2023, at the Thomas Arnold Elementary School in beautiful downtown Salado, Texas. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.